Hey, church family, so good to be with you again on this Sunday as we gather again to worship God and praise God and just be able to get together again, even if it's not in person, to be able to get together online. And just to remind you, we have started meeting in person on Sunday mornings at 9.30 here at the church building out in the back of the church parking lot, and we'd love to have you come join us, but we know that not everybody, not everybody is quite comfortable with that yet, as I've talked about, and that's totally okay. We, we completely understand, but when you are ready, we'd love to have you come join us. But in the meantime, we are certainly glad that you have chosen to worship with us online this morning and glad that you're here and glad that we can be together. You know, context is, is really important. It's one of those things that sometimes is underrated until it, it comes into play and, and, and we realize how much we needed it. I, I think of a couple of things in particular, a couple of lines that I heard when it comes uh, to context that I thought were really funny. One said, a baby's laughter is one of the most beautiful sounds you will ever hear, unless it's 3 a.m. and you're home alone and you don't have a baby. <laughs> context, right? Or here's another one that I heard that I thought was pretty good. I'm sorry and my bad mean pretty much the same thing unless you're at a funeral. Then they kind of mean different things, right? <laughs> and so all that to say, context is important. And I'm sure we can all recount times in our lives where we didn't have the full context of something and we reacted or acted in a certain way that brought about some not so good consequences, all because we didn't see things in the proper context. And the same can be said when it comes to scripture. You know, we may pick up the Bible and, and read a particular passage of scripture or an isolated story without really sitting down to consider the context in which it's found. And, and that can really cause some big time problems and has caused some big time problems for a lot of people. That's one of the reasons why I think it's helpful every now and then to, and some preachers think it's helpful all the time to just walk through it. And I think there's room for some, some topical sermons, but there's also, it's just really good to go through a book in the Bible or, you know, books in the Bible and just walk through them, not necessarily verse by verse, but just walk through them to really understand the context in which the biblical writers, uh, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, are writing what they write. Because sometimes if you just go to isolated passages of Scripture, you can be led into thinking that they're saying something that they're not really saying if you read them out of their context. And again, that's why it's so important. I'm really excited about where we're going in the book of James. Last week, we started a, a series walking through the book of James in which we're talking about the kind of the subtitle of the series is a faith that works. What does it look like, a faith that works? And as I said last week, it, I mean a faith that works in a couple of different ways. It's a faith that works as in it does something. It's active. It's not a dead faith. It's not a sterile faith. It's, it's active and moving and out there. But also it works in that it works practically. It, it works. It makes a difference in our lives and in the world around us. And so last week we spent some time looking at the first 12 verses in the book of James, in James chapter 1, and when considered what going through trials and the trials that we face, what that has to do with strengthening and deepening our faith. Well, today we're going to talk or walk through the rest of James chapter 1 as we look at verses 13 through or 25. And we're going to pick up 
in a lot of ways, right where we left off last week, still very much in the context of James talking about trials and the trials that we face in life. But here, in the verses that we're going to look at today, James is going to discuss something that you and I need to be made aware of when it comes to walking through the trials that we face in our lives. And so picking up in James chapter 1, verse 13, here's what James says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. We're going to stop there and then we'll get to the rest of the passage and uh, the rest of the sermon. But the first thing to note in, in what we just read is that James doesn't say if tempted. He says when tempted. It's not if, it's when. Just like we talked about last week and how being a Christian doesn't exempt you from going through trials and adversity in your life, nor does being a Christian exempt you from going through and facing temptation. There's an old saying that goes something like this, baptism doesn't drown the devil. Baptism doesn't drown the devil. In other words, when you get baptized, that doesn't mean the devil just goes away. Even Jesus found that out. Do you remember right after his baptism where he goes? He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and it's there that the enemy, Satan, comes to him and, and Jesus is you know, basically face to face and Jesus is tried and he's tempted. And that really leads to a first understanding this week of what it means to have a faith that works, and it's this. A faith that works realizes when temptation goes to work. A faith that works realizes when temptation goes to work. Temptation often comes in the environment of a trial. That's why in the midst of this section on trials, as James is talking to us, he's talking to us about how we think about temptation because temptation often comes in the environment of a trial. And listen, it's not a sin to be tempted. I think sometimes we, we get it confused. Sin is sin. It's not a sin to be tempted, but every sin begins with temptation. And while God can certainly use most every trial that you and I face for our good, at the same time, most every trial is also often accompanied by some kind of temptation. Now, James doesn't specifically mention Satan or the devil here. He will a little bit later in James, in James chapter 4. He talks about resisting the devil. But he's acknowledging how temptation works. That temptation works oftentimes in the environment of a trial. And so if you're going through a trial right now, I would advise you to keep your spiritual head on a swivel. Because if you're going through a trial right now, be advised that there's probably a temptation right around the corner because temptation often comes in the, in, in the midst or in the environment of a trial. And that really leads to a second understanding of how temptation work when, works when it comes to a faith that works. And it's this, a faith that works understands that temptation works from the inside out. A faith that works understands that temptation works from the inside out. James says that when you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. There's something about the human tendency and propensity when we're going through temptation to start pointing the finger up and, and either to intentionally or even sometimes unintentionally to place the blame at God's feet. But James says, no, 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 no. 
The place to point the finger is not up. The place to point the finger is in. James says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Here's oftentimes what happens. When you're going through a trial, you become susceptible to being preoccupied with your own desires for the purposes of relief or escape or a resolution of that trial in some way. When I'm in a trial, it's usually unpleasant, right? And so I'm looking for a way out. I'm looking for some relief. I'm looking for a resolution of some kind. And the imagery that you get here in this passage in James is really of an animal that's caught in a trap or a snare of some kind. Meaning, I need to be very aware that when I'm going through a trial, you know, or I need to be very aware when I'm going through a trial, because in the midst of those trials, I am so very susceptible to my desires being a trap that I get stuck and ensnared in. And so James is is calling our attention to be aware of those desires that so often can get the best of me and so often can entrap me and entice me. He's calling me to a measure of personal responsibility for my heart and for my actions in the midst of trials as part of having a faith that works. And as an extra incentive for paying attention to my desires, he then adds this. He says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Now, why does he tell us not to be deceived? You know why? Because we have a tendency to be deceived. I know, right? That's, that's why you pay me the big bucks. Deep, deep, deep stuff here. But, but seriously, James knows that it's very, very possible and even likely at times for us to be deceived. And we can be deceived in a couple of different ways in the midst of trials. One is to be deceived into thinking, God got me into this mess. And he's, he's let me down. This, this is God's fault. Another way of being deceived is to think, well, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want to do here in the midst of this trial anyways. I mean, God's kind of, he's just holding out on me. He's kind of, you know, abandoned me in all of this. I'm just going to take things into my own hands. Both of those are very powerful deceptions that we can easily fall prey to. And, and just think about it from a practical standpoint. If sin didn't offer some temporary satisfaction or temporary solution, there would be no power in the temptation. But sin does offer a measure of satisfaction and sin does offer a temporary solution. That's why the temptation is so powerful. But don't be deceived, James says. The bait always conceals the hook. It always, the bait looks good, but it's concealing the hook. And James says, don't be, don't be deceived. And there's no shortage of examples in scripture that, that bear witness to this. I mean, you just go ask Moses or David or Solomon, or for that matter, you can go all the way back to Adam and Eve, go back to the very beginning and ask Adam and Eve, ask them if they thought that, that there was a future in sin. Because before they took that action, I guarantee you, they did. The, the reason people of God still fall to sin is because we think there's a future in it. 
That, 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 we, that we, we, we have these moments where we think there's a future in this. There, there's a future in the fair. There, there is a future in the drug. There is a future in the vengeance or the revenge. There is a future in the isolation. There is a future in the cynicism. There is a future in the fill in the blank. But there is no future in sin. And you don't have to ask David or Solomon or Moses or Adam and Eve, you can just ask the person next to you. And if you're by yourself, or even if you're not by yourself for that matter, you can just go look in the mirror. Because we've all got stories, don't we, of of thinking there's a future in this course of action. And yet in the end, we wind up with some kind of death or destruction or bondage on our hands When in the end, we thought it would lead to freedom. We thought it would lead to a future. And in the end, it only leads to death and destruction and bondage. You got to remember, your adversary, Satan, does not come bringing gifts. He'll make you think he does, but he does not come bearing gifts. Nothing he offers is for free. You and I are going to have to pay for every single thing we take him up on. We'll pay for it all. Desire, after it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You see, it's not really the trials that do us in. It's our impure desires and our impulsive desires and our misguided responses to the trials that are what often do us in. So how should we respond? Well, there's a whole bunch of different ways that we can go, but why don't we just stick with the text and what James says here. Here's another understanding that I would give you that James, well, that James gives us when it comes to a faith that works. A faith that works counts on the unchanging goodness of God. A faith that works counts on the fact that God is unchanging and that God is good. James says in verse 17, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. James calls us in the midst of trials and temptations to remember that every good and perfect gift comes from God above. Not some, not most, every single good and perfect gift comes from God above. And he does not change like shifting shadows. So there's a couple of things that James wants us to focus on here in the midst of trials. One is that in times of trial and temptation, it's good for me to focus on the good and perfect gifts that God has given me. And I think this is so powerful when you really think about it, because what's our tendency? So often our tendency in the midst of a trial is to focus on what I lack. My, my tendency in a trial is not to focus on what I have and how I've been blessed. My focus in the midst of a trial is to focus on what I lack, Right? That's our tendency. Our tendency is to focus on on, on, on what we're we're missing out on or what we're having to deal with and what we don't get to to have in our lives. And and, and we miss the, the, the vision. We miss the view of really looking at how has God blessed us? How is he still blessing us? And we, we, we lose sight of the good and perfect gifts that God has showered into our lives. The enemy will always try to get you and me to focus on what we lack. I mean, isn't that what he did all the way back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? God says to Adam and Eve, you have your pick of every single tree and thing in the garden except for one tree. You have your pick of everything else. 
except for one. And what's the one thing that Satan gets them to focus in on? The one thing they lack. The second thing James mentions we should focus on is the fact that God doesn't change like shifting shadows. I mean, he can be counted on. So often when we're, when we're in the midst of a trial and dealing with temptation, a lot of the reason why we give in to temptation is one, because we've, we've lost sight of the blessings that we have. But secondly, another big reason is that we've decided that God can't really be counted on. That, that we, we think somehow he's changed and, and we know what he says, but, but we don't really feel it in the moment that we're going through that trial. And so we, we have to take things into our own hands, right? If we, we don't feel like God can be counted on, I've got to take things into my own hands. And in the end, we wind up with so much more, more than we ever bargained for. You see, you and I don't get to have our kicks and then not experience any kickbacks. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to have your kicks and, and get no kickbacks. You and I have the freedom to choose, but we don't have the freedom to choose the consequences for our choices. And God's gifts will always be better than Satan's bargains because that's really what they are. He's, he comes making you think he's bearing gifts, but every perfect gift comes from God alone. Nothing that Satan gives is a gift. We'll have to pay for it all. And speaking of gifts, James says this in verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. One of the, one of the good gifts, the good and perfect gifts that, that, that we focus on in the, in the midst of trials and in times of trials is what God has done for us spiritually. You know, if, if we have nothing else, I, there's a, a little devotional that I, I always remember by Max Lucado. He talks about grace upon grace. You know, that we've been given the biggest grace of all in, in Jesus, the Son of God being given for us. And yet we have so many more graces in our lives that we always take for granted, or that we often take for granted. We are so blessed. And yet if you took all of those things away and we only had the grace of Jesus Christ and what he did for on, us on the cross, that would be way more than we ever deserved. And so one of the, the good and perfect gifts, the best good and perfect gift that we focus on is what God has done for us spiritually. He's given us new birth. He's given us new life and he chose to do it. God didn't have to do it, but he chose to. He chose to give us new life and new birth in his son, Jesus Christ. He's not gonna abandon us. He's with us. He's told us that over and over again, but... Now it's time for us to grow. He's given us new life, but now it's not time for us to grow, even in the midst of trials. So, so here's the growth plan, which leads me to the next reflection about a faith that works. A faith that works involves pulling some weeds. A faith that works involves pulling some weeds. Listen to what James writes in verses 19 through 21. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Here's a question. What's your tendency in a trial? When you're in the midst of a trial, what's your tendency? If you're anything like me, my tendency is to be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. That's, that's my tendency in a trial. And don't you find that to be true in your own life? But James says, I want you to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Well, for one, 
as James says, anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, you probably heard it said before that it's not a sin to be angry. And that's true in a lot of cases. But that's not what really, really what James is driving at here. What he's saying is that anger doesn't put us in a position that's conducive to bringing about the spiritual maturity that God desires in my life. More often than not, anger that is not appropriately handled or processed winds up having too much leverage on my life in the midst of a trial so that I wind up making decisions and and taking action out of that anger that often only complicates my life and my situation in the end. Don't you find that to be true? Haven't you found that to be true in your own life? When you react in anger, it only just complicates things more and more and more. And sometimes my anger is even telling me something about myself and the things that, that, that I'm, I'm holding on to a little bit too tightly. You know, when I get um, initially or, or viscerally angry about something, sometimes that's, that's a revelation of what's really important to me for better and for worse. James goes on to say in verse 21, therefore, in other words, in light of what, we, what I've just got through telling you, Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevailing and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. James refers to the word of God as something that needs to be planted in our lives, which is interesting because his half-brother, Jesus, also referred to the word in that way. That, that the word is something that needs to be planted in our life. It's a seed that needs to be sown and planted in our lives. I love the way the message translation puts verse 21. It says, in simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. Don't you just love that imagery? I love that. I, I love that picture. And anybody who, who's ever had a garden, or even if you don't, you still probably know this, that at some point, some weeds have to be pulled, right? Now, why is that? Well, for one, they're ugly, right? They don't, they don't look good. They don't make your garden look good. But more importantly, you pull the weeds so that the good stuff can grow. And the same is true in our lives spiritually and dealing with sin in our lives. Not only do I want to deal with sin in my life because it's ugly, and it's destructive, and it complicates my life, and in the end, it's only going to bring death in a variety of different ways, but I also wanna deal with the sin in my life because it interferes with the word of God, the true word of God that brings freedom and life and joy and peace and all of those other things that the Bible talks about. The word of God brings those things into my life. When when those weeds are there, I need to pull them so that the word of God can be planted and grow in my life. And speaking of, of taking root and growing, James has a little bit more to say about a faith that works. A faith that works just does it. A faith that works just does it. James writes this in verses 23 through 25. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive, your, so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Here again, James tells us not to be deceived. That's the third time in the first chapter that he's told us that, to not be Deceive. This time it's in regard to how you and I respond to the word of God. When I, when I just listen to the word, but I don't do it, 
I'm not truly accepting it. I'm not allowing it to be planted in my life. And James says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into, into thinking that listening is enough. That just being at, at a church service is enough. That just listening to a sermon online is enough. To just reading your Bible is enough. Listening without doing isn't enough. Don't be deceived. You see, a lot of times we, we read the word and it may register in our brains. And that's a good start, but we haven't really accepted it yet. Because you and I don't really know if we've, if we've really accepted the word until we do it. Don't confuse possessing information with experiencing transformation. Possessing information and experiencing transformation are two different things. Now, information is good and it's part of the transformation process. You can't transform unless you know what to do. So you gotta know, you gotta have the information, but it's not the whole thing. James says, if you listen without doing, it's like looking into a mirror and walking away and forgetting what you look like. How ridiculous would that be, right? I mean, how many of us are going to walk up to a mirror and, and look at ourselves, and we've looked at ourselves how many times in the mirror? We know even before we look in the mirror that time. But, but just think of the absurdity of walking up to a mirror, looking at ourselves, then walking away and completely forgetting who we are and what we look like. James says that's, that's just ridiculous. That, that doesn't make any sense. And James says that's actually how it is with just listening to the word of God, merely listening to the word and not doing what it says. It's ridiculous. It's pointless. It doesn't make any sense. Listening without doing equals forgetting. Listening with doing equals truly accepting it and integrating it into your life. I like how uh, author Richard Rohr puts it. He says, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of of thinking. I like that. You don't think yourself into new ways of living. You live yourself into new ways of thinking. In other words, there's a sense in which you're not completely convinced of the truth of something until you walk it out in your life and in your actions. And it isn't until you walk it out that you're truly changed in your thinking and that you realize, wow, this stuff really is true. Wow, this stuff really does work. Okay, I get it now. I mean, there's just, there is so much stuff that, that Jesus just lays out for you and, he, and, and me, and he, and he says, Here, here's what I've called you to do. And, and, and he tells us, this, this is what leads to life and freedom and healing and transformation and peace and, 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 and all of those things and joy. When you do these things, this is what it leads to, and yet we're not truly convinced about it until we walk it out. There's a certain level of spiritual transformation that will not happen until you walk out what you already know. And so in essence, what James is saying is a faith that works just doesn't. It does what the word says because it's only when I walk it out, that I truly become changed in my thinking and that I truly accept it. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? And yet at the same time, I mean, let's just be honest, just doing it is hard. I mean, that's, that's the hard part, right? It's easy to listen. It's a lot harder to do, which is why it's so important to remember what James calls the word of God. He calls the word the perfect law that gives 
freedom. God's word, when you read it, you read something that Jesus says, you, you listen to, to something that you know is from the Bible, and it's so hard to do. That's, that's why when we, when we hear it, when we listen to it, it's so important for us to tell ourselves, yes, this may be hard, and, and yes, or no, I may not want to do it, but he's telling me this for my freedom. It may be hard, I may not want to do it, but he's telling me this for my freedom. When Jesus speaks to you, when God speaks to you through his word, it's not to enslave you, it's to set you free. And speaking of freedom, James then says, whoever does it will be blessed in what they do. Notice that he says you're blessed in what you do, not in what you know. You're blessed in what you do, not in what you know. You can know the, the Bible forwards and backwards and everywhere in between, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but don't be deceived because the blessing is not in the knowing. The blessing is in the doing. You're blessed in what you do. Don't be deceived, James says. The blessing is not in the knowing. It's in the doing. I saw a recent medical study that reminded me of how common it is not to do what we know to do. The study revealed just how difficult it is for people to change their ways. Every year there are around, I don't know, 400, 500,000 Americans who go through or have heart bypass surgery. And in the study, this, this study in particular looked at not that many, but they looked at a whole bunch of, of different heart bypass patients all of them had heart bypass patients or surgery, but they were all kind of different cases or different people, you know, different backgrounds, all of those different things. But what they did is they studied them over the course of, of time. For several years, they studied them. And, and what they found is that, um, well, one of the things that, let me rewind for a second. One of the things that doctors will tell you is that it's a temporary fix, okay? So I'll get to what they found in just a second. I've skipped over a little bit of part of what I wanted to lead up to it. So one of the things that doctors will tell you is that heart bypass surgery is a temporary fix, okay? So you gotta change your, your lifestyle. You can't just go back into the same old habits. You gotta, you gotta quit drinking, quit smoking, lose weight, eat healthier, exercise, be more active, um, you know, cut out stress in your life. You've got to do those things, right? It's just a temporary fix. You've really got to change your lifestyle. And so you would think that the seriousness of having heart bypass surgery, that a lot of people would be provoked to change, that, that, that they'd, they'd make the appropriate lifestyle alterations. And yet here, now, now I'm getting to, the, to, to what they actually did or what they found out. Here's what they found out. That's mostly not the case. They found out that in fact, 90%, 90% of heart bypass patients don't change. Now, some will make some temporary changes, but this study found that after two years following heart bypass surgery, 90% of patients remain the same as they were before the heart bypass surgery, living the status quo. They hadn't altered their behavior. They were still eating the same. They were still locked into the same bad habits. They were still not as active as they should have been. They were still doing everything the same. Still choosing the path for more heart problems down the road. All that to say that change is difficult. I get it. Change is difficult. Change can be hard at times. And listen, a doctor can fix your heart temporarily but your quality of life and transformation is up to you. 
And guess what? The same thing is true when it comes to our lives spiritually. That's why we need to constantly be asking ourselves. I think it's important for us to ask ourselves two questions when it comes to how we, how we approach God's word. First, what does God say? And second, what am I going to do about it? It's really that simple. But if you were to ask yourself those two questions and, and really act on those two questions, it will change your life. What does God say? And what am I going to do about it? That's really just another way of, of us, of getting us to what James says. Don't merely listen to the word. Do it. What does God say? What am I going to do about it? Those, those two questions are questions of transformation. Because as you guys have heard me say over and over again, maybe some of you are listening for the first time, you know, in the, in the last few weeks or months, maybe you haven't heard me say this, but if you've been a part of our congregation, you've heard me say this, God loves you the way you are. He does. He loves you right where you are, the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. God loves you right where you are and he is accepting of you right where you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. You and I are called to do more than just listen. We're called to, as we sometimes sing, trust and obey. Not just trust, not just listen, but to obey we're called to walk this out. We don't think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. You see, the question isn't really, are you in the word? The question is, is the word in you? The question isn't really, do you have the word? The question is, does the word have you? James has a lot to say about outward trials and the inner temptations that so often come with it. And let me tell you what, both in an outward trial and in an inward temptation, that's where you find out and everybody else around you as well finds out just how much the word has you or if something else has you. Because listen, you're going to be tried and tempted. Temptations and trials are gonna come. It's not a matter of if, but when. And when they do, what's in you and what has you, or more specifically, who has you, can make all the difference.